So our scripture lesson this morning is from the book of Haggai, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And before I read it, uh, the morning group, the morning service, almost none of them knew that Haggai was a book in the Bible. So I want to poll. How many of you knew Haggai was a book in the Bible before this moment? None, none of you first service people, you already know that because you were in the first service. But So I promise you it is a book in the Bible. This is not made up. Someone said it's like a comic book, like it was Jughead's cousin or something like that. But or that Haggai was from the south or something. But this, I promise you, this is a book in the Bible. So Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. In the second year of King Darius, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Chealtiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you that saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Is it not in your sight as nothing? Yet now take courage, O Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Take courage, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Take courage, all of you people of the land, says the Lord. Work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the promise that I made to you when you came out of Egypt, My spirit abides among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once again in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that that the treasure of all nations shall come. And I will find this house with splendor, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The latter splendor of this house shall be greater than its former, says the Lord of hosts. And this place I will give prosperity, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. A reading, I know all of you were glad you didn't have to read out loud for everybody else, right? Get those names right. So I have a confession to make to all of you this morning. I am a terrible homeowner. When it comes to DIY projects, household maintenance, I am just completely inept at it. And not only am I inept at it, I simply just don't enjoy doing it. Um, It's not like I didn't have great examples growing up. My grandfather was an excellent amateur carpenter. One of my mom's most treasured pictures of me is me when I'm like two or three years old sitting on my grandpa's workbench while he's working on some project in his downstairs shop. And and my grandpa taught all of those skills to my dad, his son-in-law. And my my dad became a really good amateur carpenter as well. A lot of the the pieces of furniture that I have in my house, they were handmade by my dad. And so people will come in and they'll ask me where I got it. And I will probably say, my dad made those for me. You won't find them in any store or any catalog. And so growing up, everything around our house was sort of a DIY project, right? So electrical needed to be fixed. My dad would do it. Plumbing needed repaired. My dad would do that. When I was a little bit older, the, the flooring needed to be replaced in the back bedrooms. And so my dad took it upon himself to put in the hardwood flooring by himself, um, And as the oldest, I was always his most trusted assistant. (laughs) And I did more than just hold the light for him. But I have these memories of hanging drywall with him or putting up doors of all these different things. And, And I did it because he was my dad and he needed help, but not because I necessarily enjoyed doing it. And now that I own my own house, whenever there's some kind of project that needs to be done, I am the the quickest person to call someone else who knows what they're doing to come in and do the work for me, or better yet, to wait until I know my dad's going to come visit and have a list of things that need done around the house. 
And he's always so gracious and ready to help me with those things. But I'm really inept at those kinds of things. I'm not the most handy person. In fact, the building and grounds committee here, sometimes they're working on projects around the church and I'll come in and check in on them and they'll, they'll hand me like a hammer, like they're joking with me to have me come and help them, even though they know I have no interest in doing that and that I would probably be a hindrance to them and rather than a help. But this DIY, this rebuilding, this restoration, that's where we find the people of God this morning in this small little book of Haggai. Uh, Haggai, this book that is towards the end of the Old Testament. And Haggai is sort of interesting as far as biblical books go in the sense that we don't have a whole lot of biographical details on who Haggai the prophet was, but we have a lot of specificity to when and where Haggai wrote down his words. So with biblical books, often what happens is you get these these scholarly estimates, these educated estimates that, that are sometimes within a couple hundred years, sometimes a couple of decades, But with Haggai, we know it down to the exact date when he was writing. So his book happens between August 29th and December 18th of the year 520 BC. It does not get more specific than that. And so what is Haggai addressing in this book? In order for us to understand that, we have to kind of take a big step back and do a quick little survey of biblical history. And this is going to be a kind of quick survey. It's going to be overly simplified but it helps to orient us to what Haggai is talking about in this little passage. So in biblical history, you have the 12 tribes of Israel that come out of slavery in Egypt. And under Kings David and his son, King Solomon, they are united together into one kingdom. So David and Solomon, these are very recognizable figures in the Old Testament. David is the one who most of the Psalms are attributed to. Uh, In Sunday school, if you grew up going to church, you probably heard the story of David and Goliath. Uh, The Messiah is thought to have come from the line of David. We call Jesus the son of David. And then you have Solomon, someone who is known for his exceptional wisdom, the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And he's maybe a little more infamous for being a character in the Bible who had 700 wives and 300 concubines. But that's a whole other sermon. Let's not go too deep into all that. So after Solomon dies... The kingdom splits into two separate nations. You have the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. And Judah is where Jerusalem and the temple are located. And so these two nations, they exist separately for a couple hundred years until about the year 722 BC when the Assyrian Empire is on the rise and they're in this process of conquest across much of the Middle East. And they conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. And the citizens of that nation are sort of carried off, they're sent into exile, and really they're lost to history. Um, Later on in the New Testament, you'll have this group called the Samaritans that claim to be the descendants of those people that have intermarried with different ethnic groups. But that's a matter of debate. That's a claim that they make that maybe is true, maybe it isn't. The point is, is that that nation is now gone. And so much of the Old Testament then is the the Judahites writing down this history. And as they watch the nation of Israel be destroyed, in their minds, it is because that the nation of Israel was not faithful to God, that they were unjust, that they were corrupt, they did not care for the widow, the poor, and the orphan. And so they see this event as one of divine punishment. And we might rightly debate whether or not God does such things, but sometimes it's helpful for us to just simply get into the inner logic of the story to help us understand the point that the biblical authors are trying to make. 
And so Judah is watching this, and now that, that Assyria has destroyed the nation of Israel, they are now on Judah's doorstep, ready to conquer them as well. It's this national and political crisis. And so the king at the time is starting to scramble around, trying to figure out which political and military alliances to make. And that's when the prophet Isaiah steps in and says, don't trust in political and military alliances, trust instead in God, and God will save us. So I want you to think ahead to the season of Advent, which is coming quicker than you think. And all of those beautiful words from the prophet Isaiah, the woman with child, wonderful counselor, mighty God, Prince of Peace, Handel's Messiah, right? We've read Jesus back into those passages, but originally Isaiah is addressing this political crisis. I'm sorry if I've ruined Handel's Messiah for you, uh, but that's just as simply the case. And so what happens is they, they, they turn to God and they survive. The Assyrians are unsuccessful in conquering the nation of Judah, and they continue on for another 150 years or so. And despite that, that moment of trusting in God, uh, there were these moments that Judah too was unfaithful, that they um, followed after other gods, they were unjust, they were corrupt, they were not the sort of people that they were called to be. And so then you have this other empire that arises, the Babylonians, and they succeed in the year 587 where the Assyrians failed when it comes to Judah. They conquer Judah, the nation is destroyed, the, the Jerusalem is burned to the ground, the temple is burned to the ground, and many of those people are carried off into exile in Babylon. And I say many of those people because not all of them were. You have some that flee into Egypt, and you have some that become known as the people of the land. That was referenced in our reading, that they, they lived there in what was formerly Judah. But it's the scholars, it's the scribes, it's kind of the elite that are carried off into exile in Babylon. This event, the Babylonian exile, is like the central event in the Old Testament. It's sort of the, the hinge on which the entire Old Testament swings. It is the, the glue that holds the whole narrative together. This moment of a national crisis, it produces these theological questions, these national, these questions of identity. I, I imagine that that year in 587 functioned a lot for them like the date September 11th, 2001 functions for us this date where everything changes, where we begin to wonder what happened and where do we go from here? And those are the, the questions that the, the Judahites carried off into exile. They begin to ask those kinds of things. How did we get here? So you have these whole books in the Old Testament, First and Second Kings, the, the history of the nations of Israel and Judah, and they are written from the perspective of trying to answer that question. How did we get here? And you have books like First and Second Chronicles, a retelling of that history, but from a different angle. A question of, with everything that has happened, are we still God's people? The answer that the author of First and Second Chronicles gives is that despite everything, despite the exile, we are still God's people. Within the prophets, you get these new images of God that begin to emerge. Not God as one who is punishing the nation, but a God who is carried off into exile with them. A God who experiences that suffering just as they do. And the prophets begin to orient the people towards hope. They say to them that the exile is not the end of the story, but you will one day return back home. Back to the land that God gave to you. 
And so they are filled with this sense of longing, this desire to return back home, and it sustains them for the almost 50 years they find themselves in exile. Until the year 539, when you have this quick succession of empires in the ancient Middle East. You have the Persians now who arise, and their policy is one of the, the nations that they conquer living in their own land but not being exiled. And so the Emperor Cyrus sends the exiles back home in the year 539. That moment they had all been longing for, that return back home. They had been dreaming and thinking about what that must have looked like. And they get home and I think they maybe imagined that life would return back to normal just as it had been 50 years before. And yet what they find is a world that is dramatically different. Jerusalem is burned to the ground. The temple is laying in ruins. And, and so what they find in front of themselves is a rebuilding project. Rebuilding not just the physical structures of their towns and their communities and places of worship, but a rebuilding of, of life together, of what it meant to be the people of God living in the land. This rebuilding project. And there is some sense that the people had begun to rebuild the temple at this point. But now, 20 years on, when we come to the prophet Haggai, it seems as if all rebuilding efforts have stopped. And the people have kind of been absorbed with their own individual concerns, rebuilding their own houses, these magnificent places to live. And in the minds of prophets like Haggai, that's the exact thing that kind of led them into the exile in the first place. The neglecting of the rebuilding of the temple was a huge issue for people like Haggai. And so the book of Haggai then is all about inspiring, admonishing the people to get busy rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the place where God is worshipped and served. And that is what Haggai does in chapter one of his little prophetic book. He admonishes the people to get busy. And he must have been really inspiring because these two men, Joshua and Zerubbabel, a name I know that you all wish you could have read for everybody else, right? Joshua and Zerubbabel take charge of this whole rebuilding project. They say, we'll lead the way. And so they get busy rebuilding the temple. And Haggai goes away and then he comes back a month later to check in on, on how that project is going. And it is a disaster. Nothing is going right. Everyone is discouraged. Morale is low. There are some elderly members of that community, almost 70 years removed from the, the exile, who can remember Solomon's temple, the one that was destroyed. And they're saying, what Joshua and Zerubbabel are building, it looks nothing like what we remember. Everybody is discouraged. And that's when Haggai does what prophets are really good at doing. He orients the people towards hope. He says, keep on building the temple because, and he draws from this, this imagination that has long lived in the prophetic mind of all the nations of the earth streaming towards God's temple for restoration and healing. But what Haggai says to them is what you are building is a temple, a place that is part of God's good future for the world. Keep on building, he says. I know the temple doesn't look right right now, he says. I know that the, the shutters are hanging off, the floors are uneven, the paint's falling everywhere. But even that temple is a sign of God's good future right here in the present. It's a little pep talk from the prophet Haggai. He's like a coach in the locker room when the team is losing miserably at halftime, saying, keep on going, keep on playing, because you never know what's going to happen. 
what you are building together is not simply a house of worship, but a place that offers hope and healing and goodness to the entire world. And I think a, a prophetic pep talk is exactly the kind of thing we need as we prepare ourselves for this visioning summit. I think the prophets are really good at, at helping us to, to not be trapped and confined by the past, but they help us to reorient the past, to see it as the foundation, the structure on which inspires trust in the present and hope for the future. They're always reorienting us towards hope, towards a sense of possibility. And I think that, that Haggai speaks to us in this moment as we are emerging from our own crisis that all of us have lived with the last two and a half to three years. The COVID-19 pandemic, I think, has felt in a lot of ways like a sort of exile. Certainly that was true in the earliest and scariest days of the pandemic where we were all confining ourselves to our houses, trying to only make trips when necessary. But I think it's also been an exile in the sense that we have been longing and waiting for that return back to normal. How many of you have said this phrase over the course of the pandemic? I can't wait till we get back to normal. Oh, come on, more than you have said that. Yeah. I know I have said it countless times. And, and I think we were longing for that return back to normal because life as we knew it, regular routines and patterns were just sort of interrupted without any kind of preparation. And, and maybe at first we kind of welcome that change, that some of us got to stop and to slow down for the first time maybe in years. But pretty quickly we found ourselves back in that longing for a return back to normal, a return back to life before March of 2020. And even as a, a congregation, we have dealt with that interruption to our regular worship and community life. I, I wasn't here in March of 2020, but I dealt with some of the same realities that all pastors dealt with. The, the cancellation of in-person worship right before Easter and the scrambling to figure out how to make online worship accessible to everybody. I remember in those days, I was watching these YouTube videos about how to live stream, and they were always run by like these 12 to 15-year-olds in their bedroom at their mom's house, teaching me how to live stream services. We moved everything onto Zoom, right? We became really efficient at using Zoom. And I think the only phrase that we've used more than I can't wait till we return to normal is, your microphone is on mute. <laughs> and added on top of all of that, this church has gone through a transition in the middle of a pandemic, this saying goodbye to a long time and well-loved pastor and the, the welcoming of a new one and having to do this in really unconventional ways through a computer screen. I, I remember I had to meet so many of you, or all of you, uh, via Zoom, and I had to learn what you looked like both with and without a mask on. Um, there were times where I didn't recognize a few of you that I'd met on Zoom because I didn't know just what the top of your head looked like. Um, and, and this church, I think, has navigated that transition exceptionally well. It has gone way smoother than I think than any of us could have imagined. It's a testament to this congregation, the preparation, the intentionality of that was put in. And even after we returned back to in-person worship, life still looked different for a little while. We required masks. We had registration to be here in service. We had uh, some of the pews marked off. We had those wonderful to-go cups for communion, right? With that bread that is so soft and delicious, everyone loves. And my point in, in saying all of this is 
not for us to relive the darkest and scariest days of the pandemic. It's not to, to bring the mood down in the room. My point is that we have all lived through an event that we are still processing, that we're processing it personally, we're processing it communally, nationally, globally, and we are still processing it together as a congregation. And so one of the, the things that has happened as I have processed this event is that one of the things I've had to learn is that that question that I and so many of us have been asking since the beginning of when are we going to return back to normal? The answer is that there is no return back to normal. The world has changed dramatically. And we, I think, have to acknowledge that just like the, the exiles filled with this sense of longing to return back home, they expect to come back to the world just as they had left it. And yet what they find is a world that is dramatically different. Joshua and Zerubbabel thinking they're going to be just rebuilding the temple as it was when Solomon was king, finding instead that what they're doing pales in comparison to what used to be there. I think for us, it's the the realization that as we are emerging out of this crisis that we have all lived through, that there is no return back to normal, that there is no return back to pre-March of 2020 life. And so I think for me, the question has shifted in my mind. The question is no longer, when are we going to get back to normal? But the question to me is, who are we called to be in light of a world that has dramatically changed? Who are we called to be in this moment? How is God to be worshipped and served in this world, in this landscape that has shifted so dramatically? How are we to love neighbor as self in a very different kind of world? How do we love and care for one another? How do we welcome those, no matter who they are, where they come from, or who they love, into this place, in this world that has so dramatically changed? I think that's the thing that that Haggai would remind us of. He would orient us towards the future. And let me say that the rebuilding project, I think that's in front of us, this rebuilding of life together, is not nearly as dramatic as the one that faced the returning exiles. Um, They really had to start from the ground up. But there are a lot of things in this congregation that have survived, that have seen us through the pandemic, that are still there, that will remain there. The question in my mind and on my heart is, what new things are waiting to emerge? And whatever those things that are waiting to emerge are, are always built on the foundation of God's past faithfulness to us that whatever we construct will be built on that foundation of who Greenfield has always been, a place of progressive and open faith, a a place where where we are loved and cared for, a place that that is very concerned about the well-being of our neighbors, about those who are called the least of these, our sisters and brothers. But how are we orienting ourselves towards the future. I think that's what Haggai would have us do, to to turn and to look towards the future, to ask that question of who are we going to be in 2020 and beyond, not how are we going to reconstruct brick by brick pre-March 2020 life. I think Haggai would remind us that there are already and have already been new things that are emerging in this community. The fact that there are cameras in the sanctuary, an indication of that, I never wanted to be a televangelist, And yet, Sunday after Sunday, our services are are live-streamed out onto YouTube, a a new way for people to connect with us. Or or next week, we have the the fall fiesta with a taco food truck. You know 
I'm excited about that. <laughs> this new opportunity for fellowship or the, the growth of our uh, Climate Action Now team or our racial justice group, these are all new things that are beginning to be built on the foundation of who Greenfield has always been. So the question is, who are we called to be? We are called to be people who look ahead to the future, who rest and reside and are sure-footed on the foundation of God's past faithful actions to us, to look towards the future. And all I ask of all of us as we begin this visioning process is that we are open to who God might call us to be, to be open to new possibilities. And I think that this congregation is uniquely situated for that. One of the things that was revealed in that that cat that you all did back in 2015, I think, is that this is a, a congregation that is open to new possibilities, to trying new things. It's to remind ourselves that what we are building here is not just a, a church, it's not just a building, but it's a place that offers hope and love and goodness to other people. So may we be oriented towards hope, towards the future that God is building here among us. Thanks be to God. Amen.